Welcome to The Perspectivalist. Our agenda is to offer a perspective of the world that allows you to think more clearly as a Christian. We want the normativity of scriptures to be the starting point of everything we do. Thanks for joining the conversation. This is episode 11, and I am your host, Yuri Brito. I want to say as we begin this episode, uh, my gratitude for the many downloads for the last podcast entitled uh, The James Jordan Revolution. It has hit me recently just how much what I do is dependent on the insights of Jim Jordan into the scriptures and his typological hermeneutic, how influential has been in just shaping me, not only as a biblical interpreter, but also as a human being. So I'm grateful for all the downloads, and I hope you listen to the other nine podcast episodes. And I'm also grateful in advance for your contributions to the Perspectivalist in Bitcoin or in Ethereum. You know, it ultimately is all Kuiper's fault. I have been pondering his words ever since 2003, and I have been considering Kuiper once again as I have been rereading through lectures on Calvinism for a project I'm doing for Canon Press later in the year. In fact, there was someone who gave me a copy of lectures on Calvinism many years ago that hit me with electrifying power. Now, of course, I had already been grounded in the basics of Reformed theology, not from your run-of-the-mill Calvinist thinker. I was versed, first and foremost, in the Reformed faith through R.J. Rushduni, Gary North, Cornelius Van Til, Greg Bonson, and others. But Kuiper felt like he was from the past. It was an ancient past. At least that's how I looked at his works as a novice in church history 20 or so years ago. And what brought me to my theological needs when I first read him was the remarkable ability he had to talk about the exhaustive claims of Jesus over everything. That's it. That's the simple narrative of a Kuyperian commentary. And that's a fundamental reason why I think people need to start reading Kuiper again and why Kuyperianism is going through a revival of sorts in our day. So anyways, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Here are five propositions that I think make Kuiper such a superb apologist for the kingdom of Jesus and a very needed voice in our day. First, Abraham Kuiper was Trinitarian. Now, that should be a badge of honor for every Christian, true, but Kuiper applied it in a very unique way in his Pro Rege, Living Under Christ's Kingship. This is a volume one if you have the Lexham Press series. He notes that, quote, there can be no separation or contrast between the authority of God and the authority of Christ, close quote. For Kuiper, the power of authority is not inherent in fallen humanity, but comes from the divine power of the Son who creates all things. Whereas many people tend to separate the power of the Son and the Father as if they don't work together, Kuiper harmonizes the triune work. He sees the Trinitarian work as a unified work on behalf of the salvation of the cosmos. He affirms the Catechism, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. He operates from beginning to end as a Trinitarian Christian. Dominion for Kuiper can only occur in a Trinitarian universe, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together to ensure that the cosmos is made into the image and conforms to the image 
of the triune God. Secondly, Kuiper believed in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And even though he didn't use the theological categories of postmillennialism in his writings, as far as I'm aware, his vision actually harmonizes quite well with that of his fellow theologian B.B. Warfield, who invited Kuiper for the Princeton Lectures in 1898. Kuiper notes in profoundly optimistic categories, quote, Christianity is being carried forth into the world, coming into contact with the elements and laws of human life, and through that contact, modifying and changing life entirely, close quote. That is, Jesus' commission was not a mere hope, but it was the promise that the nations would fall under the authority of Christ, that everything that the Christian faith touches changes entirely for the good. Third, Kuiper viewed the world through incarnational lenses. The reason Kuiper's view of the world was not detailed in the abstract is that he believed that Jesus' arrival on earth was not an abstract arrival, but that it actually signaled a transition to a new way of being. Jesus didn't come as a ghost. Jesus embraced a human body. As Kuiper writes, on the contrary, he becomes one of us, a human being just as we are. He organically incorporates all the elect into his mystical body, and Jesus rules over them by ruling in them and making them spiritually free, close quote. Kuiper affirmed that this world is guided by a flesh and blood king who sits at the right hand of the Father, and that he is not separated from his creation, but he entered creation so that we might live as new men and women in his kingdom, and that the incarnation was the turning point of redemptive history when heaven came to earth in human flesh. So Kuiper advocated a Christian life deeply free from the slavery of sin and free to do the service of God on earth as it is in heaven because Christians are now free and that freedom is achieved through the incarnation of God himself. But fourthly, and something that I think we need much more of today, is that Kuiper's theology was doxological. We all have grown up with the catechism question that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The goal of the minion is not to change people through the use of force. It is to see lives transformed by the gospel and free to enjoy, glorify, honor the triune God. As Kuiper notes again, our salvation is indeed the goal of Christ's kingly rule, but its primary goal is the glorification of the triune God. Close quote. We're not saved to live as we please. We're saved to live as he pleases. That's true freedom. That is to use our gifts and callings to serve the God who created us. We are doxological beings. We're incorporated into a world by the love of the triune God so that we might give back to the triune God the glory that belongs to him. But finally, and this is an element that's missing quite a bit in our evangelical ethos, Kuiper viewed the role of the church as more than spiritual, but also the role of the church was very didactic in nature. It was instructive in nature. He notes, the church may not be content simply to bring the gospel to the lost. Instead, its primary calling is to lead those the Lord calls into a deeper understanding of God's intentions. Close quote. This is where Kuiper views the Great Commission in very thorough fashion. If the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled, it must be a commission rooted in discipling the nations, which includes, as Matthew 28 says, 
a sacramental component, baptizing them, and a sanctification component, teaching them all his commandments. That the church's call for Kuiper is to feed the people of God, to edify them, as Paul says, and then send them out to feed the world. Feed the people so that they may feed the world. We are nourished so that we may nourish. So, a Kuiperian view of the world includes a robust Trinitarianism, a belief in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, viewing the world through incarnational lenses, developing a theology that is doxological by nature, and viewing the role of the church as more than spiritual, but also instructive. The Kuiperian writes and thinks on the basis of these fundamental assertions advocated and taught by this Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. Therefore, a Kuyperian commentary must be faithful to these principles, principles which are rooted in the very fabric of sacred scriptures. I'm Yuri Brito. The Lord be with you.